Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. I know in my very first episode of the Advancing Women Podcast that this podcast is for ambitious women, but it is also very much a podcast that every man that works with women should listen to. And over time, although most of my listeners are badass, ambitious warrior women, there are also many badass male warrior allies listening. And I really wanted to acknowledge that and talk about why male allyship is so crucial in the advancing women movement. So new episodes of the Advancing Women podcast launch every Tuesday, and I upload late Monday night because my analytics show that a lot of my listeners are listening before I even wake up on Tuesday mornings. And last week, Tuesday, I woke up to a post about my podcast where there was a screenshot of the podcast with the caption, quote, best way to start the day, end quote posted by a male listener. And this isn't the first time or the only time. Whenever I promote my new episodes on social media like LinkedIn, I'm always pleasantly surprised to see who's liking and sharing and engaging. Often, not just sometimes, many times, the first people to like, support, repost, and engage are men. I'll click on the LinkedIn profiles and see who these men are. It's attorneys, former NFL players, advertising executives, CEOs. It's awesome when I see that and so encouraging. Sometimes the work of gender equity can feel exhausting and disheartening, even insurmountable. Then I see these male allies bravely and publicly supporting the work of advancing women, and it's like a deposit in my emotional bank account. I recently received this letter from a male listener, quote, Your podcast brings something to the conversation that extends past buzzwords, which is unbelievably important to advancement and inclusion. It's becoming a saturated conversation that lacks eloquence and innovation in the language we use to discuss these topics. The lack of fresh language can then make the whole conversation feel stale and creates a feeling that the work is done and over with when we know it's only just begun, end quote. Wow, right? I have many former female students who listen and send me feedback, but I'm sometimes blown away by the number of male students who send me notes or feedback. One of my former male students sent me a note saying, quote, I know I can share this podcast with family and friends who are a little in the dark on these issues, and it would resonate without sparking a need to get defensive on the topic. It is very communal and kindness-led commentary, end quote. One of my iTunes reviews from a male listener states, male managers will get some viewpoints that they hadn't thought of before. Another former male student recently reached out to touch base to let me know that he had just gotten a promotion. And at the end of the conversation, he quickly said, oh, by the way, the podcast is wonderful. I wouldn't think that a 20-something-year-old male in finance, which happens to be the domain he's working in, would be listening. But some do, and that gives me hope. The evidence of male allyship, the exemplars, make a big difference, and I want to honor them in this episode and provide some evidence-based best practice research recommendations from the research data on male allyship, because I know there's a lot of men who are allies. First of all, we need to recognize male allyship when we see it. It's those men I just noted, not only listening to the podcast, but publicly supporting the message of acknowledging and advancing women. One of my favorite examples of this is from the professional American tennis pro, Andy Murray. 
It's one thing to feel philosophically that you believe in gender equity. It's another thing to have it be such a part of your belief system, your core self, that it surfaces organically and often. So you may remember in 2017, Andy Murray lost his quarterfinal match at Wimbledon to another American player. And after the match, a member of the press commented on the significance of an American advancing in the tournament. The reporter said, Andy, Sam is the first American player to reach the semifinals since 2009. Without missing a beat, Murray replied, male player. Taken aback, the reporter said, I beg your pardon. And Andy said again, male player with just the right amount of disdain for the question apparent on his face. While some members of the media had forgotten about Venus Williams, who punched her ticket to a semifinal berth the day before, Andy had not. He just wasn't having it. And in this moment, he exhibited authentic, meaningful, impactful male allyship. It wasn't his job to correct people and remind them, but he had chosen to be very outspoken consistently about gender inequality. And so we must talk about moving allyship to advocacy. An ally is a person who unites for mutual benefit. So this is mindset, right? You have to believe there's a benefit to equality. An advocate takes it even further as a person who publicly supports or recommends a particular cause or policy. And we need both. We need allyship and advocacy from those allies. This isn't about being in a savior role. We're not damsels in distress. It's about inequity rubbing you the wrong way because you as a man want a fair, just, and equitable world and see the benefits of that equity. And so being a male ally, an advocate for gender equity, often begins with considering your why. As a man who's an ally, you must be clear on why if you want to be authentic. Certainly, Murray didn't come to the interview expecting to have to advocate, but because it was an essential part of his core, because his why was so clear, he's moved gender equity from his slow brain to his fast brain, part of his core identity, not just what he believes, but who he is. And there are different types of allies. There are allies of self-interest, where the driver is the injustice experienced by people men know. We're seeing more and more of this as we have generations of men with working wives and daughters who are seeing and hearing on a very personal level, the inequities. So it's important to take that a step further and remember, if the inequity for your wife, your daughter is a problem, it's a problem for all women. And then there's social justice-driven male allies, those driven by the need to act in ways that change the status quo. It's often men from marginalized and underrepresented groups that are the strongest allies for women, men of color, men from the LGBTQ community, men with disabilities, because as author Michael Sandel notes in his brilliant and insightful book, Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? We often understand justice through the experience of injustice. And that is the mindset that perpetuates allyship. But how about fair competition? For truly talented, blue-chip, top-of-their-game professionals, success means more when it is achieved fairly and on a level playing field. True competitors should be uncomfortable benefiting from bias and barriers that disadvantage women. Truly successful, talented powerhouse leaders want to be at the top because they are the best. And if you're only truly competing with half the workforce because the other half are not on a level playing field, that would make a true competitor feel uncomfortable. It reminds me of a post I saw on Instagram. It was powerful. And I went and found the article to learn more. The caption read, 
a stunning act of sportsmanship. And the article noted, when we're forced to make a split second decision, our true colors are often on full display. And so I read on and a Spanish triathlete, Ivan Fernandez Anaya, was just about to finish a cross-country race when he noticed Abel Mutai, a Kenyan athlete who'd been in the lead, begin to slow down as he approached the finish line. Abel did not speak Spanish, so he got confused by the signs and thought he had already won and started to slow down. Ivan saw what was happening, and in an instant, he could have easily darted past his opponent to win the race himself. Instead, he slowed his own pace and pointed a bell towards the real finish line so he could win. When they asked him about it, here's what his response was, quote, he was the rightful winner. He created a gap that I couldn't have closed, end quote. When pressed further and reminded that he was seconds away from winning the race himself, he told the journalist, quote, but what would be the merit of my victory? What would be the honor of that medal? What would my mom think of that? Indeed, men who truly believe in meritocracy so often touted but rarely proven out in the research must be trailblazers with a steadfast focus on equity and male allyship. And this means men must be courageous. It is courageous to publicly say things you know might make others uncomfortable, where you know there will be eye rolling and even snickering. You're going to ruffle some feathers. Sure you are. But that's okay if you're doing it with positive intention. That's what it's like for most women who advocate for themselves and other women all the time. Worry less about those opinions and more about doing the right thing. And you have to look for opportunities because they are everywhere. And it starts with being an upstander versus a bystander, calling out bad behavior. If you can squash it or fix it, doing so. Creating that no tolerance culture for unprofessional behavior can have a real impact. You have to keep in mind the disproportionate commonality of women's mistakes being called out and of the disproportionately negative impact of that public critique on women. I was in a meeting once, and it was going really well. I had been given a leadership role on a project, pulled together a group of creative thought leaders in the organization, and was pitching them some ideas for a new direction that I was very excited about. And they were excited. It was an awesome flow, just this great energy, you know, how it feels when you're crushing it. And I knew that I was impressing others from outside the team, that they were getting excited about my vision, that I was having a really good professional moment. But then a member of my team, not from the outside group invited, my team interrupted loudly that I had misspelled a word on the PowerPoint. And the energy and the momentum drained from the room like a deflated balloon. It totally shifted the positive energy. It was really disheartening. And you know what would have been awesome? If someone had said, oh, who cares? Or if organizational leadership at some point had coached this seasoned employee on the art of criticizing privately and complimenting publicly, which is a basic tenet of professionalism. And this man was a former corporate executive. He should have learned that already. If culturally we call out that lack of compassion and kindness and create a different kind of culture where those types of things don't happen, where it's just not okay, it will disproportionately help women because as the research shows, and as I've noted on previous episodes, women's mistakes are noticed more often, seen as bigger, attributed to lack of competency and remembered longer. If someone siphons or hijacks another person's idea in a meeting or interrupts, belittles, embarrasses or disparages someone's work or questions their credibility publicly, 
Calling out that bad behavior helps everyone, but it especially helps women because those public critiques and criticism have a disproportionately negative impact on women. Women are more disadvantaged when bad behavior occurs. And it's interesting, really, because just pushing for a bit more professionalism, calling for a more civil climate and interaction can help to start to change the culture. And change, action, that needs to be the goal. Of course, mindset is important. If you think different, you feel different. If you feel different, you act different, for sure. But the challenge is, how do you know your mindset as a male ally is manifesting in action and positive change? So men, if you consider yourself an ally, make a list of things you've done specifically, tangibly in the last few weeks to help women, to be an ally to women, to advocate for women, even if it's just interrupting bias patterns. What specifically, tangibly, action-oriented versus philosophically are you doing regularly? It's important to think about these things. You must make that shift from ally to advocate. Those public actions matter because first, it can start to change the culture. But second, it sends a signal to women that they have allies they can count on. And this is so important. The research shows an allyship gap. In a recent workforce study asking if men were doing everything they can to advance gender equality in the workplace, 77% of men said they are, while only 41% of women said that men are. And it's like a tree falling in the woods, right? Does it make a sound if there's no one there to hear it? Does being an ally make an impact if nobody sees it, if nobody benefits? This is truly a call to action for men to be vulnerable and empathetic. And these are not words we historically associate with leadership and certainly not with men as leaders. It's a movement from valuing men as assertive and confident to being valued as a man in leadership for being compassionate, empathetic, and even vulnerable. But it's also about being brave and courageous. Changing the workforce, the world even, isn't for the weak of heart or spirit. So how do we fix it? There's an emerging body of research that provides some good best practice male allyship tactics. It starts with not listening and responding with but, which essentially negates everything before the but. Not defending where you're personally getting it right in response to a woman feeling the organization overall is getting it wrong. You must decide if you want to truly listen and accept and help. That's allyship. Or try to convince the person that they are either wrong or dismiss their feelings, that they don't have a right to feel this. And that's PR, not leadership, and certainly not allyship. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it isn't there. And if they feel it, it's real for them. And dismissing their lived experience not only doesn't help, it makes it worse. Remember that allyship is about others. It's not about you. We hear this a lot. Women express concerns and there's this self-preservation response. The person listening tells you how you've made them feel bad or they're offended when in fact, it is because they see you as an ally and trust you that you're the person they're coming to to begin with. Don't erode that trust by turning the conversation into how you personally are offended that they feel that way. Next, allyship is about reflecting on power and privilege beyond your feelings and experience. Often, men who are the most supportive and have the most egalitarian attitudes towards advancing women don't realize that this isn't the norm. Their fair-mindedness often is an outlier and not necessarily the norm or reflective of the lived experience of most women. 
So you need to consider reframing the idea of privilege and what it means. It does not mean hardworking, top talent men haven't earned their position or role. And here's a big one. Get into the habit of crediting women publicly. Name the colleagues who positively impacted a project or came up with an idea. Correct people if they misattribute an idea and mention it and the woman's name in front of senior leadership often. You may fairly see and assess women's value, but as I said earlier, others don't always. You may have to say it much more often to get that person on senior leadership's radar. Next, speak out and call it out. As I said earlier, true allyship is about being an upstander, not a bystander. And certainly this speaks to sexual harassment and other egregious behaviors, but also those smaller microaggressions. Gender microaggressions are small, seemingly innocuous comments that can pile up over time and affect a person's sense of self and identity. These microaggressions can become so commonplace that they can start to go unnoticed, yet they still have an impact. In a recent large-scale study, two-thirds of women reported noticing microaggressions against them. They reported that sometimes these are small, demeaning remarks said as a joke, snide commentary about their competency that centers around stereotypes of women, Little comments, like women in the research reporting how they'll be talking to another woman about a work issue, and a man will come by and say jokingly, what are you two gossiping about? And I've seen this myself. I had a colleague once who had gone through a very rough personal loss. We had a very good, lasting, trusting relationship, and he talked to me about the details and said he didn't have it in him to explain it over and over to our work colleagues. And could I just tell them the details? So in our next meeting, which was a day or two after, I told them. They asked for additional details and I was thoughtful for a minute, wanting to ensure I didn't say more than my coworker would want me to. And after careful consideration, I said, I think this person would be okay with me sharing this specific detail with all of you. And a person in the room jokingly jumped in and said, oh, I'm sure they told you because they knew it would get to everyone. Honestly, it hit me like a slap in the face. It shifted the experience from me being a trusted confidant to me being some stereotypical gossipy woman. And even worse, it denigrated my character, suggesting I couldn't be trusted. It still bothers me to think about it. It was so hurtful and unfair. And then there's the constant corrected language and grammar, challenging your expertise. Even if they don't have the expertise, they'll still challenge your expertise. Interrupting. And the research is so clear on this. Women are interrupted far more than men in meetings, okay? Everyone gets interrupted. Women get interrupted much more. So male allyship is seeing and acknowledging these seemingly innocuous microaggressions. Studies on incivility in the workplace show that while less than 50% of men report these interruptions, two-thirds of women report it. So you have to see it, right? you got to get used to seeing it. You can't clean your house if you don't see the dirt. Then you have to stand up and defend women in those types of situations. Leaders create the culture and set the example and tone for what is and what is not acceptable. And we need to nip that behavior swiftly when it happens. And this, of course, can cause a bit of discomfort. So a huge part of male allyship is learning to live with discomfort. That is part of being a trailblazer. It may feel uncomfortable at first because nobody likes to have their bad behavior called out. And too often they have been left unchecked for so long, a simple call for civility will be seen as putting them on blast. But you still have to do it. Okay, that's being an ally. You must advocate with specificity and pragmatically for change that creates more equity. 
If you run a department, you have to know if there is a pay gap and fight to get it fixed. Or if the last three promotions were men, what needs to be done to interrupt that pattern? What can you do to interrupt that pattern? What must you do? Allyship needs to be proactive, not just being there when there's a complaint, working so that there's no need for the complaining. Your fault or not, if your industry or company has a problem, you can have a positive impact through tangible allyship, mentoring, sponsoring, advocating for fair and equitable treatment of women, leveling that playing field. This is especially important in male-dominated industries and in places where women hold few high-level positions. And it's time to normalize allyship. A literature review of male allyship research highlights the struggles that female leaders face in addressing gender equity in organizations where men dominate at the executive ranks, including a reduced sense of belonging due to their outsider status. Research shows there's a risk of women's issues being marginalized as complaining when mentioned by a woman. There's often a professional cost to women for doing so. Conversely, the research showed that male advocates who utilize their positions of power among the male establishment to challenge the status quo seem to do so with little personal or professional cost. So asking women to support women, which we so often hear, is asking a group that will have to do so at a high cost to their professional capital versus focusing on a group that can do so with very little cost to their professional capital. And this is the group that has the professional capital to begin with. And I feel compelled to note in talking about women supporting women that despite being debunked over and over in the research, this queen bee, women don't support women narrative is just not proven in the data. A 2020 McKinsey and Company lean-in study of 40,000 employees from 47 companies answered survey questions covering multiple themes, including allyship. This was a robust study with meticulous statistical, multiple regression analysis to support the findings. The study found that senior women are much more likely than senior men to practice allyship. Allyship actions based on specific behaviors like listening to and acknowledging the stories of the lived experience of women and the bias they feel, publicly acknowledging and giving credit to women, taking a public stand to support gender equity, taking a stand to support racial equity, mentoring and sponsoring of other women. And it's those employees with the least professional capital that are already the most likely to engage in allyship. And the McKinsey research also showed that employees in traditionally marginalized groups are often more likely to take key allyship actions. Black women are almost three times as likely as men overall to mentor and sponsor women of color. And women overall are much more likely than men to publicly recognize women of color for their ideas and contributions. So we need to move the focus away from how women need to help women and really focus on male allyship, where there is the most opportunity for growth and change that can have a big impact on equity and inclusion. So there's this organization that really focuses on the importance of male allyship called the 21st Century Male Allyship 3% Movement. What I love about their message is how they challenge the term empowerment, which is really interesting because it's generally a positive word, right? But the term empowerment means to give someone authority or power, which begs the question, why are we asking for it in the first place? Who has the power to give? The 3% movement calls us to stop empowering women and start advocating for women. And this is a fresh and insightful mindset, shifting from giving someone authority or power to this idea that women are already powerful. 
We just need men to stand in solidarity with us. We can't give women what they should already have, what they have earned and deserve. Rather, we should recognize and celebrate that power and help with the kibosh on behavior that erodes or impedes women's power. This conversation is an important shift from empowering women to empowering men. The 21st Century Male Allyship Program articulates this perfectly, noting that the program is, quote, designed and developed to empower male allies to be at the forefront of leading inclusive, respectful, creative cultures where all people can thrive, end quote. Amen. Let's get organizations on board with this movement. It's things like allyship training. We're starting to see more and more diversity, equity, and inclusion training, which is great. Things like unconscious bias training, that's important. But let's push, too, for male allyship training. This is an important shift in training, which tends to focus on what not to do. Ally training is about what to do. And there are companies that we can look to, aspirational organizations who are modeling this. For example, Levi Strauss and Company is providing tactical training and allyship to help employees become effective allies. They've been conducting quarterly allyship workshops since early 2020, and the training is focused on not just learning, but then implementing action-driven strategies organization-wide to help combat inequity. And here's what's interesting. The organization reports that feedback about the allyship sessions has been positive with over 90% of participants rating the workshops a 10 out of 10. So let's keep the momentum going. Push for it to be the norm in organizations. Organizational behavior is a critical part of male allyship. Male allies are in a powerful position to make change, but they must have the knowledge, right? And that's part of what this conversation is about. I've quoted it before, but I just love Maya Angelou's quote, do your best until you know better, then do better. So male allies listening, thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing and help others to do better. And warriors listening, share this with every potential male ally you can think of. We have to ensure that they know better so they can do better. And so my manifest statement this week is a quote from James Baldwin. Quote, it is certain in any case that ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have, end quote. So then, It is knowledge of the importance of male allyship that will be a ferocious enemy of injustice and inequity for women in the workforce. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at advancingwomenpodcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics you'd like to hear me cover in more depth or new topics you'd like me to explore. So please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. I just want to thank my producer, Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.